If you get rid of this concept of loyalty, which has never really been there, and you take a look at a very fluid market, the transition in the world actually in this transition at the moment is that people move fluidly. I think we're entering into a very transactional world and we can see it. Hey, I'm Mike Stopforth and this is The One-Eyed Man. Welcome back. This is a show where I talk to talented people doing meaningful work at the intersection of leadership, technology and impact. Thanks to those of you who are return listeners and if you're here for the first time, a big welcome to you. My guest on this week's show is Michael Renzen. Mike is the CEO and co-founder of Incuba, which is a customer journey management software as a service platform. Mike has built multiple successful internet technology, content and customer experience businesses. He's an endeavor entrepreneur and honestly one of the most intriguing minds I've ever had the pleasure of engaging with. I first met Mike on a ski trip with a bunch of mates over a decade ago and was struck immediately by his, he's going to hate me for this, his monk-like disposition. He's super chilled, doesn't speak often, and when he does, he has this deeply thoughtful, zen-like impact on the room, certainly on me. We've since collaborated on conferences, and we've shared many deep conversations about work and about life, and so it was only a matter of time before I convinced him to be on this show. In this episode, we talk about customer experience, we talk about his business, uh, we talk about how thinking in the field of CX has evolved over the last couple of years, and where we can expect it to go in future. I hope you enjoy the conversation. My experience, Mike, of, of so many of the entrepreneurs that I've had a pleasure of you know, meeting and developing friendships with is that the place that they've arrived at now is very seldom the place where they started. <laughs> the career journey of many entrepreneurs is always fascinating. And, and often there's not a direct line between the business you've created today or the thing that you're an expert in and, and where you began. How was it that you came to the journey of entrepreneurship and what happened before that? What was Mike Renzen being kept busy with uh, before you started in Cuba? Sure. It's a big question. I thought to you were going to talk about the life journey rather than the, the, <laughs> well, the, career, do that too, if you the career journey. So um, I think a lot of it, um, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a conscious decision uh, for me. A lot of it, even when I was a teen, I, I liked inventing stuff and like making stuff. So yeah. I think... Um, what, like technology? <laughs> It wasn't even really tech in those days. Like I like building stuff and, and okay. things like that. So um, I've always seen myself more as a creative person, uh, which which is odd because it's kind of coming out now more in my career, mm-hmm. um, where sometimes I even think like maybe I should have been a muso or uh, you know uh, I'm not kidding. Yeah, um, I actually think. Well, if uh, you were in an agency, you might have been like a creative director type of role. Oh, oh absolutely. I think uh, I, I think tech and entrepreneurship was really like an expressive fabric for me because I'm mm. useless with a with with a paintbrush mm-hmm. or, uh, mm-hmm. or sign, but I'm a creative person, so it was a, mm. uh, it was a good outlet for me for building stuff and taking ideas and and moving them around. So yeah, I think that's been the it's the, a cool way to driver. think about it. Yeah, and and so was that always something that you were sort of drawn to? Is 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 building things, being creative? I mean, what did you study? Did you study architecture or what? Um, I actually, I actually studied. I did economic science okay. and um, and I did my honours in computer science, and then I went to okay. business school afterwards. But uh, but that was actually by by accident. The whole thing. It was. Uh, uh, I remember sitting on the steps once at uni with with a friend of mine. Where did you go to uni? Uh, I was at Wits and then okay. at business school in, in Cape Town. Okay. And I was with a friend, uh, Mark Stan, and there was little career counseling in those days. And someone said to me, hey, well, you should do this. I actually wanted to go do business science because I wanted to do like a mix of arts and mm. and, and science. And uh, unfortunately, I couldn't go to UCT. And my parents said to me, go to Wits. And I ended up doing economic science. And once I sat with him on, on the steps and we were like in the middle of first year. And I said, well, what do we become? And um, <laughs> what happens and, now? And he said, well, we we become merchant bankers and the only merchant thing I heard was a sea merchant so I thought uh, I had images of like um, being at Piracy. the docks and <laughs> offloading crates and things like that I, I almost fell into in into tech it was um, uh, it was almost by accident yeah. the, the, the whole thing yeah would you describe 
your business today predominantly as a technology business? The Incubate business today is is a technology business, but when people say something's a, a technology business, tech has moved. The, the whole thing has moved in many ways. I think if a company is creating a, a product today, particularly in, in the tech field, mm. uh, I know this may sound ethereal, but they're actually in the business of, of love. Uh, mm-hmm. rather than in in the business of, of feature or function. Because whatever you're creating, even if it's for business people, people have to love it. And that's a whole experiential thing. So I think what people want when they say, oh, it's a tech business, they, they actually want products that, that they love rather than um, a functional product. So people need so to think... So way beyond the idea of problem solving and into something that your clients feel deeply connected to correct yeah. correct the um, people have to really when when they use a irrespective of the product they have to go well i love this it's easy to use um it solves my problem really really easily and a lot of the work that we do is around solving those particular challenges around well is this hyper intuitive are people going to understand it and are they actually going to love it I think it's a really interesting way yeah. of thinking about it. It's not a way I've ever thought about it before, but there certainly are tools or platforms in my personal experience as a customer, as a client of technology businesses that I would describe as being useful and functional. And then there are things that I love. And I, it's hard to know what makes those different, what it is about that platform, that tool or, or that product that conjures affection, you know, kind of a deep-seated appreciation for what it does for you because i've always i always think of technology in terms of enablement in terms of solutioning right and i suppose there's a double-edged sword to what you're saying because not only are you creating platforms or you're creating technology that you want your client the person who's paying you money to love but you want them to love it because it tells them about how their customers love their products right so it's kind of a it's eating its own cooking if that makes sense yeah uh, you you could definitely look at it that way. I think in 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 some ways, um, when when we set out with Incuba, um, there, there was that feeling of changing the world. Like we we're going to build <laughs> products and customer experience management and, and change the world. I think um, in in some ways I've had to pull a bit back in in that way because um, the the corporate world is. It's still in the mode of well, how can we solve this problem, or or how can we stop this 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 drop off? I think the idea, um, even with within our customers, around a customer centric company that they they're going to build something out from from the inside out that that people really love um, is a tough idea. I'm starting to see a bit more of it, but when you've got legacy businesses that um, are making a lot of money, that kind of ethos is not always in 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 corporates. You see it a lot more in 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 the challenger brands like a fintech, where mm-hmm. where where they're trying to do something and they have to really differentiate. But if if you think of that progression, and I actually I'm reading a, an amazing book that actually talks about this. It's called The Autonomous Individual, mm-hmm. and um, he speaks about some of the first products, like modern products that were ever made, and. One of the, the first product was um, that was ever made was insurance for farmers. It was very basic. Um, the, the farmer would rely on the landlord to give them seed uh, mm-hmm. each year. And because if they didn't have seed, they would actually starve. No crop, yeah. So no crop. So they actually gave up that, um, that power to the landlord and the mm-hmm. landlord aggregated. So something I picked up from, from Rich Mul- Mulholland, who we both know, was, mm-hmm. uh, was this idea of a head, heart and gut. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm starting to think a lot more about product and product development. The first products ever made uh, were, were gut products they were mm. uh, they, almost they were, instinctive reactions to a need yeah well almost around fear like if i don't oh, yeah. buy this product i may not eat next year mm. i think the next products were really head products which were much more around well does it satisfy a particular need but the the products that the world is 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 really going for at, at this point in time are hard products well um I, I love using it or i love the experience around it or it does good for the planet or, or so on and we're definitely seeing a gravitation pull towards that hmm 
I want to go back to a phrase that you used just now, uh, that phrase that I <laughs> love so much. Uh, I'm being facetious, but customer-centric. And, and I'm facetious about it because I don't think I've ever met a business that doesn't claim to be customer-centric, a business that doesn't put that on their you know, lobby wall, you know, emblazoned on perspex, uh, you know, to, to claim that they are a business that cares deeply. But I, I can almost count on one hand the number of businesses that I think truly are and hold that as a, as a central, as a core value to the way that they design products, the way that they treat people, the way that they deliver services. What does being authentically customer-centric actually mean for you? Like, how do you how do you recognize that? What is what is it other than just a nice thing that companies say that they are but don't necessarily deliver on? Yeah. So a lot of the original thinking, if you go back a decade in this, and I'm not going back a decade in history, I'm going back a decade because I was there a decade <laughs> ago. And um, a lot of it was around a belief that you could change culture. And um, if you gave people enough feedback from customers that you could start actually moving and and and, and actually changing um, changing culture. So, so that if you're a bank and you're big and complex and cumbersome, you've got a culture. If you're listening to what customers are saying, you can use that feedback, that data, to modify your business in order to. Is that what we're saying? Correct. That's what that, being that, customer centric if, if, if you take a look at the uh, let's say the the execution of that, and and that's been. Uh, the the predominant execution, not just in South Africa, but globally over the last 10 years was these massive mega voice of the customer programs where they'd collect um, tens of millions of pieces of feedback from customers um, with the tech kind of cutting it up and pushing it back to parts of the business in the hope that um, at the various tiers in the business, let's say it's a call center agent or call center manager, that if you're getting that feedback directly from customers, it would profoundly change the organization at, at multi-levels. So mm. if you think about uh, orchestrating organizational cultural change and awareness around customers by, by getting feedback, by actually saying, well, hey, this is what this customer is saying, and I must change my behavior accordingly, that was really the belief or the driver behind it. Okay, can I poke a hole in that though? Yeah, and plenty. Okay, there, cool. There's so many. So here, here's in. the, and, I, and I'm, I'm being a little obtuse around this because I think of how much I've seen this phrase abused or presented as a positioning or as an approach or as an attitude that I think in, in most of the cases is, is completely contradictory. But the problem with that is that we're assuming that employees actually care so if I'm presented with information about what the customer needs, I feel like as an employee, it's still going to align with what I need for me to act on it. If I'm not absolutely sure that there is some sort of alignment between what's important for the customer and what's important for my own, the what's in it for me piece, right? Like, so I think we, in the last sort of five, 10 years, the conversation around employee fulfillment has, has kind of risen to the, an employee engagement has risen to the, the four. So you get another consulting term that we love to throw around, right? And I think the, the secret source is in aligning the employee agenda with the customer agenda. Because if we if we, we can be super clear about the customer agenda, we, we can present that data to the people who need that call center agent, that frontline uh, reception uh, person, that uh, individual who's uh, delivering the product, whatever it might be, flipping the burgers. If the, what the customer wants isn't somehow aligned with what I need, and my own fulfillment, it doesn't that almost breed a sense of kind of discontentment and like alienation? Could it not even promote the wrong kinds of behaviors? Look, I think the, the problem is even deeper than that, because if you take a look at the, the, the modern workforce, um, and I saw a very good kind of snippet on it on um, two guys having a chat and the younger jet, a guy actually listening and then giving the older guy a lecture and he said like there's three generations it was your grandparents generation they worked irrespective of their boss and being abused by by their boss or not yeah, just lucky to have um, a job yeah lucky of, yeah. to that was survival mode the next generation was really like um, our generation, which was like the tech generation. We, we, we had a lot more choice and we could get the things that we, we kind of wanted and, and so on. But this generation, calling the social generation and the social generation, 
is there's never been loyalty. It's been more around, well, um, what's well, in it for me? Yeah, well, <laughs> what, yeah. yeah, what's in it for me? Yeah. So if you if, if you get rid of this concept of, of loyalty, which has never really been there, and you take a look at a very fluid market, the transition and the world's actually in this transition at the moment is that people move fluidly. Um, I think we're entering into a very transactional world and we can see it. If, if someone's starting a new, a new business together, particularly with what's happening in AI today, you don't have to have a whole lot of employees. You can have a very powerful business without sure. a whole lot of employees sure. and you can contract out work on a transactional basis. So, And what, create tons of value. Oh, oh, totally. And, and create a really big business. So, I think the, this whole idea about customer experience being a soft thing, and I've never, ever agreed with it. Uh, Incuba actually went to market with that approach because that is what people were buying, they, they, the, uh, the, the mantra and the products that were, they were buying. But we pivoted about five years ago because we saw, um, and when I say we saw, when you take a look at tens of millions of data points and then you actually say, well, is the net promoter score moving up? Yeah, sure, it's moving mm. up. It, uh, it moved up, um, let's say you move someone from 40 to 60. Great, but have you fundamentally changed that organization? And the answer is probably not. We're seeing like some deep insights into what the customer experiences as a great customer experience. Customer experience in the way that it's being measured is actually a hygiene factor. It's like, hmm. um, it's like well, if your, your NPS is 40 in a bank, um, that's good enough. If it's 60, it's not going to mean that you get a whole lot more customers because 40 was actually good enough. It hmm. means that the basic things that you're doing, you could have a mediocre uh, online banking experience. You could have mediocre mobile app you could have a reasonable branch experience. But people go, well, it's kind of okay. I may not move to the next like big digital banking idea because I've been with this bank for the last you know, 15 years and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to move. Yeah, the so, barrier to change is just too high. So yeah. you'll still say, well, I'm going to give it a 40 or a 60 or whatever. You don't give it that score, but that's how it's calculated out. And it looks good for, for that particular company. But that's not where customer experience is at. And we're starting to see um, such a shift in, in the way that the whole thing is, is playing out. And the, 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 the thing that I'm seeing is customer experience today has moved. It's completely different to how, how it was 10 years ago. Customer mm. experience is actually about conversations, which is such an interesting um, idea. It's about conversations. And um, for People to feel that they're having a good experience, they want you to understand the conversation. Same way as we're talking now, and there's context, and there's intonation, and there's timing, and and content, and like, okay, are we in sync? Yeah. Yeah. Is it working? And they want you to be able to get the feedback and they want you to be able to adapt and change really, really quickly um, in, in a very transactional way. And I can speak a bit more about this because um, it's so profound, the, the change. And the first companies to actually do this that, that I ever saw were, were probably Amazon and Uber and Uber Eats would be the, the, the three standout ones people kind of go like oh these are great brands and they're dominant in that but if you actually take a look at what have they been doing like mm. what what did they do what happens behind the scenes in these companies to to make them the kind of companies that they become um, and you apply that thinking then you'll get a customer-centric organization so <clears throat> So I want to expand on that because I think that might be the most interesting thing that we can unpack in this. Um, and, and you know how central that is to my belief about what makes brands meaningful and engaging. And you know, the whole purpose of running a social media agency years ago was to help brands have more productive conversations, whether they liked it or not, um, with customers um, using social as a, as a platform. But the problem with conversations, I think we're discovering this in the world in general today, is that they're hard. Conversations require effort. They are, it's difficult to have a good conversation without being invested, without being engaged. And that means that it's something that's difficult to do at scale. Now, every, let, let's take, 
let's take major financial services players as an example. Every every bank, every insurance business um, starts out its journey as a as a challenger, upstart, as a um, you know, as this kind of like stroppy teenager, but with a real passion and focus for delivering something to the customer that the ex- the existing landscape can't do. Take Capitec as an example, right? Profoundly disruptive in its ability to deliver what is essentially a very commoditized product, but in a way that feels differently with real intent, real focus, real deliberation. And as a result, upends the status quo, grabs significant market share. And so you're successful because you've achieved customer centricity. Right? Well done. Then you get big. <laughs> and with big comes complexity and processes and systems and policies and all the other things that have to happen when you become a big organization. And suddenly customer centricity becomes less important um, purely because of the, and, and not because you don't care, just because it's n- near on bloody impossible to scale intentional and meaningful connection with people when you're strapped for resources and you're cutting costs all the time and you know, you're competing with everybody else for the scraps under the table. And I'm saying, I'm saying all of this because I think that this is pretty much the life cycle that every organization goes through where they reach a stage where their primary objective, it seems, is to not make their complexity the customer's problem. That's actually what customer experience seems to be about for most of it. It's not delivering love. It's not creating real connection and meaningful engagement. It's just stopping imparting your own shitty <laughs> kind of processes on your poor innocent customer who's just trying to spend money with you. you know what I mean? Like um and that's not really value. That's that becomes maintenance and, and in my mind, like that means that you're slowly dying from the inside out. So how does any organization of consequence, organizations of impact and scale and size, how do you do that meaningfully? How do you do that in a way that doesn't feel like I'm speaking to a shitty chatbot. Yeah. Right? How okay. do you do that well? So I think the the themes around it are they they all link into the the same idea. And when I say I think we're seeing the data around it, so it's not uh, this isn't a thought. Uh, Incuba gets tens of millions of data points every every month, and um, we pivoted to this idea of the customer journey about five years ago, and mm. we've invested very, very uh, heavily in this idea of the customer journey. And um, the customer journey out of any tech or idea that I've ever worked with, the customer journey is the most powerful idea mm. for delivering customer centricity. Mm. So the reason for it is that when you look at the customer journey, um, it started off with mapping. So people inside the boardroom saying, well, we know so much about our customers and what we're going to do is that because we're so clever and we know so much, we'll sit around and we'll create the customer journey. We'll map it and we'll say this is what we want and at this point we want them to feel this and that. Um, Sorry, can I? Yeah. Because I'm aware that yeah. some people on, that are listening to this might have never heard of a customer yeah. journey before. Yeah. Like if you were, as an example, a, a car dealership, what would a very basic sort of customer journey mapping process look like? Like, what are you yeah. actually trying to do with that, yeah. that process? And is it literally a map? You know, you help somebody who's never okay, heard so, of that phrase understand so, what it might look like. Yeah. So if you're if you, um, a vehicle manufacturer or dealership, mm-hmm. um, and, and let's say you own the mothership of the brand, mm-hmm. and you say, well, we have a luxury German brand mm-hmm. and we want our experience to be as great as the... Humanly um, possible. Yeah, yeah. A, a, as a product itself. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's where it often and almost always falls flat. So the experience that I want to map out is if someone looks for my particular product and they find the product, I want to know um, if, if they put in any kind of detail to say, well, I'm interested in this car, it pops up and it just gets your name. The, the first thing that I would want to understand is what is the intent and mm. is the intent to get the price or to test drive the vehicle or so on. And let's say my intent is to, is to test drive the vehicle. That's all I want. I just want to drive the vehicle. 
what I would then want is to make it very easy to be able to drive that vehicle. So the things that would be important to me is, well, when do I want to have the test drive? Which model do I want to drive? Do I want uh, them to come by my work or do I want them to come by my home um, and to make it super easy? So the uh, different people would want to do that potentially different ways. Mm, Some mm. people may want to, while they're on the website, uh, uh, fill in the form other people may say want to click a button and complete it on whatsapp they may choose a particular channel so the designers of that experience have to think about what the customer wants and how they're going to solve that particular problem uber and i'll go back to the example of something that i do regularly because i'm in the field is i take like very complex problems and and some of them are disgusting like a big problem that Uber drivers have on a Saturday night is people vomit in their cars. Mm. Like, this is a big problem. So how does Uber solve that problem? And they've thought about this problem. It's, it's a gross problem. But sure. They've actually thought about it really carefully. It also impacts so, the value of their product. So it's, yeah, on so a practical level. The way that it works, and I've, I've asked the drivers about this, um, is that if, if you go out and you get drunk and I'm sure it would never happen to you never ever and and, <laughs> and 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 you mess someone's car what what they do is that Uber actually pays for that car to get valeted mm. and then they um, they deduct credits from the next time you book an Uber and if you don't pay that amount you actually ban from from Uber until oh, wow. you pay that amount so they took a problem that's a real problem and they built a solution around it and they, they drive that solution with reward and incentive. And the same thing happens, thinking about this on the way here, an Uber driver gets a star rating, um, a passenger gets a star rating, but imagine the chaos if you gave every employee a star rating mm. in your organization. You actually said, well, I'm not going to monitor or regulate you anymore. You're going to get a star rating and your customers are going to give you a star rating or your co-employees will give you a star rating. But it would cause such chaos. But Uber's thought of these things and how they're going to do it in a, in, in, in a deep way. So we, we, we're moving around a bit here, but going back to the customer journey, instead of trying to map out the customer journey, see what people are actually doing. So you can start out with a basic hypothesis, and, and that's where you should start out. You just start out, you don't need to overkill the thing. You say, well, here's a basic journey map. This is what we think people will like, and let them go through the journey. But the core thing you've got to do is you've got to measure the journey, and we've got the tech to be able to do that. That's what Incubate does today. Mm -hmm. We actually mm -hmm. take those journeys, and you we, take the speculation out of the mix and you completely. support it with we, we, proper insight. We, yeah. we digitize it. So we, we actually generate these real-time journey flows. So someone's on the website and they're moving through and they're looking for, uh, let's say, uh, booking a, a car or um, a test drive or getting a credit card. We, we, we visualize it and we show all the points that they went to. We show if they switched to another channel, we show where they dropped off. And... So we can start seeing the idea of a drop-off means that you had intentionality around someone getting to a goal. And all people really want to do, people don't really want to love your company. They may, there are certain brands that they get to love, but in most cases, they love the brand because the brand does it really well mm. for them. Or And there could be a social need as well. So the Nike run um, it's not about the advertising. It's about the, the fact that people who run want a, social, a need for they, community. They, yeah. A need for community. So they create a community around it. So they love the brand. So brands today, it's not about the advert. It's about the experience. So how do you make your brand experiential? You have to think what people want. And then you have to build that into, we call, that, call it a brand-infused journey. You've got to take that idea and unravel the things in the brand and make them experiential so that they pop up in the journey. And some things are very practical. If you click on the Uber button, you don't want to wait for 10 minutes. You, you, you want to click on the button and someone comes to your door within a minute. That's part of the experience. But the logistics to get that right are are crazy. Mm, mm. So we, we, we take it for granted that... Um, sure. That, when you start thinking about yeah, the detail, it can yeah. be overwhelming. So um, the whole idea of the journey, and um, you, you do this repeatedly, 
And, and behind the scenes, what people are not seeing about these incredible organizations, and uh, there are not that many, Amazon mm, does this sure. extensively as well, is they're taking a look and they're collecting massive amounts of data about those journeys. And then they, they're getting feedback along those journeys. And then for each of the problems, they group them and they group that problem and then they say, these are the big problems, these are the smaller ones, these are the very small ones, this is the value of my customers, here are the segments, and how do we solve these problems? And they keep solving the problems incrementally. And that is really what a modern company looks like, which it's not a product company. And, and that's why when you talk, you use the banking example mm -hmm. uh, earlier, um, that Capitec started out as a product um, uh, bank. They developed a product. Everything was around the product. They're now trying to move to be more experiential uh, as are, but it's very difficult to re-engineer an organization around being experiential when it's been built around, around product. Mm, mm. Yeah, so I, there's a sense that customer journey mapping is is as much about understanding the existing customer journey with all of its faults and issues and problems and gaps and holes. And so it's a, it's an expression of reality, right? Like how do we know exactly what it is that our customers are, are, are um, being asked <laughs> uh, to endure in the process of wanting to spend money with us? Cause it can be that, that hard sometimes, you know? Um, and then it's also used as a framework for, strategic improvement it's both of those things right so it's not just an expression of reality it's also kind of an expression of of intent and where you'd like to be in the future and so it, it, it's where we're at today but it's also what we want the house to look like once we've made all of the improvements right um so so, so it's a bit of both of those things the the mapping exercise is, but the manage the management exercise isn't. So even even customer journey mapping is moving from this idea to mapping to management. Like the, the mapping process is very little value mm. <laughs> because mm. you map it and you say, well, this is our intention. But okay, then you great. Got, what do we do now? Yeah, yeah. And then you've got to go and you you've got to you've got to execute it. So if it's an original product and you're starting out, then it's a, it's it's a reasonable exercise to do. But if it's an existing product and you're now mapping something out, and I've walked into organisations and um, I'm talking about big banks in in this country and i walked in there and uh take me into the one was an oval room and every part of that room had a sticky note and uh that covered the walls with these journeys and they said look at the work we've done and i went how long did this take and they said well it took us about a year and a half and oh then i God. said to them well what are you going to do with it and yeah. there was just silence sure yeah so it's not enough to know there has to be a plan around how to change well, you can't, the organization can't absorb sticky notes. Sure. Um, so as much as they'll try. Um, the organizations who are trying to change in that way are, are, are not going to be successful in, in what they're trying to do. Uh, organizations, you have to digitize it. And the reason you have to digitize it is that the cycles are really rapid. So um, a great case study, and this is a published case study, is work that we're doing with Sunlam, Sunlam Corporate on retirement annuities. And mm. so we, we, we took this idea of the brand-infused journey and we actually executed it there and we did it really, really well. What was the problem they approached you with in the first place? So the... The problem that they approach us with was saying that they've got the, the, the Sunline brand and it stands for, um, for, for trust and, um, and good communication and longevity and um, all of those things that, are, that a big investment brand would of, stand for. Of 100 for. years old. Would Correct, stand for, yeah. and, and, and heritage. But mm. how do we take that and put it into the journey in a meaningful way? Because mm. they found that even with the brand and you see the billboard and you see the ad, how do you create the experience where people are not engaging with you? Mm. And that was the original problem. So instead of going into a boardroom and trying to unravel a whole thing with sticky notes and journey maps, what we said is, well, let's measure what's happening. And uh, we, 
with with journey management, we take all of those points and we're talk, talking about um, it depends on the use case, but in it, it can be up to one US telco. They want it up to a billion data points a hmm. month to, to come through. So we're talking about a lot of data and the ability to map a lot of data. And so we take the journey points and then we 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 map them mm-hmm. and then the thing pops up it organizes itself and it visualizes itself and then we we saw like right from the get-go we can see every single thing that happens with the customer so the point when they engage um what they've been through at which point in the journey so you start tying up this flow of exactly what's happening and in that flow we can we could see that less than um, a fraction was actually six percent of the communications that were being sent were actually being um, engaged were, with at all, or even being read or okay. or, or, or engaged with. So six <laughs> percent of the people. So the first thing that one has to do is to say, well, why is this happening? You, it, it's important. You've just bought a retirement annuity. Um, you should be onboarded. You should have a level of curiosity. And 94% of people are not engaging. Hmm. So, um, Even after spending money. Yeah. After spending money. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So we had to unravel that. And the way we unravel it is with a conversation. So instead of doing a survey, we've changed that notion. People hate surveys, and surveys are absolute dead. Companies shouldn't be, and uh, you know, this is still global best practice, and so on, but companies shouldn't be surveying. They should be having conversations with their customers. And when you have a conversation, the conversation kind of goes like, hey, we sent you this. It's uh, super important. It's about your retirement and your T, and this is going to be like really critical when you retire, like, but you haven't responded. Mm, mm. Why haven't you responded? And when we talk to people in that way, we lift the engagement rate from like 6 or 7% to 40 to 50%. Mm. Uh, it's just massive. People want to be spoken to. Mm, mm. So we then take that data and we we use unstructured text analytics, which is AI, to group it to say, well, what are the key reasons? And the, the reasons are sometimes bizarre. Oh, I didn't know I had a Sunlum retirement annuity. Wow, yeah. So it can be, that's understandable because it's an employee benefit and mm. maybe the person didn't really realize that the company um, um, has contracted with, with, with Sunlum. That's for service that. provider, yeah. What we are then able to do is we now know the reasons. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know about the portal, even though the first message said, well, uh, log on to the portal. Mm, mm. So we start seeing what people see and what they don't see in the way that we talk to them. And we then adjust the communications accordingly. So we'll shift the communication. We'll take them down a leg to say, well, this is super important. The first thing that we had to start doing was having a conversation about engaging with people to say, well, when you retire, have you thought about it? And what are your aspirations? And when we start that conversation, we got a completely different result. People engage. We've pushed the engagement up to over 40%. And such a key thing that we found in the data is that the level of engagement and goal achievement are almost 100% correlated. Hmm. If people, in, if, if your customers are engaging with you, the likelihood of them getting to their goals increases exponentially. Wow. So that's why I said it goes back to conversations. And you can't have a conversation about about everything. Sure. So you, you have to then choose, well, what are the dominant conversations and how are you going to solve for that? Is it also about picking the right customers to have the conversation with? Because not all customers are the same. And I suppose there's going to be certain customers who will provide a lot more insight or come to the table with a lot more willingness to have that conversation or will have more extensive experience of your products and services. How much of it is is about picking the right customer to have that conversation with? Sure. Um, Mike, we're doing that in such an automated way now Mm. and at scale. So. Um, a, a lot of that stuff, um, I think if you're doing original product development and you you want to use user groups and focus groups and things like that, but um, a lot of the, uh, when, when I look at brilliant products today, they it's not about moments of inspiration, it's about um, 
dipping in very, very frequently mm. and, and massive incremental uh, change. So you have to have very flexible IT systems. Uh, you've got to have very flexible um, engagement systems. So what we do is we work with massive amounts of data. Mm. And uh, we don't interview anyone or speak to anyone. We just get the feedback. We, we capture the conversation, the unstructured text analytics, which is AI, groups it into key themes. And we group it into economic. Well, uh, uh, is this customer talking about things like price or interest rates? We group it into um, uh, functionality. Is it a functional problem that they're not happy with? We group it into brand, which is about, well, um, is this brand engaging in the right way? And do we love this brand? And we group it into experience. Mm. And is, is the brand... Uh, delivering the right kind of experience so that I can hit my goal easily. And those four categories we call a value model. Mm. And if your value model, uh, what I'm saying is not rocket science, it's so obvious. If you understand what they value and you can get them to the next goal, then they'll move there. The other thing that we're seeing is it's not these big things. It's it's about at each point in the journey, there are these hyper stages and, and uh, hyper decisions that people are making. Um, marketers and behavioral uh, people, uh, uh, consumer behavior people always thought it's like, oh, they're these big decisions. What we're seeing in the data is that human beings make micro decisions at key points in the journey, mm-hmm. and they're continuously making trade-offs. So... Um, Let's say it's your second credit card and you heard about this and maybe you want the benefits of it. What will happen is as you start that process, if it's a little bit difficult or you see like, oh, the price is a little bit higher, something like that, you tap out. And what we're doing, instead of trying to have these deep conversations, we're trying to aggregate the big conversations. So we get 100,000 pieces of feedback uh, from a customer group in in a month and that's the volume of feedback we'll aggregate and we'll say well here's the sentiment automatically here are the key stories behind uh what what they're saying they fit into one of the four quadrants of the value model um they're talking about interest rates and we we're doing micro segmentation and in the micro segmentation there's really two things that you can do a few things you can do but one is change your messaging to that group of people to Mm -hmm. explain it better the second one is change your product. Mm. If there's enough group, of, uh, if there's enough of a, a segment or group of people who are complaining about something, you may want to introduce like Uber X or Uber this or yeah. whatever it happens to be, and then you can build a product for them. Or you just say, well, they're not our customers, and we we can't make them happy, and that's not our market. Yeah, we used to say from a reputation management perspective, we used to say the gap between what you promise and what you deliver is the source of all your pain, right? And there's only one way to change that, is either change what you promise or change what you deliver. So <laughs> kind of the same thing, um, it, it, certainly in terms of philosophy. I'm glad you mentioned AI earlier on. Obviously, very topical right now, as if AI has only just been discovered and invented. Um, but you, uh, as, a, as a very progressive and innovative tech business, have been embracing machine learning and natural language processing for a very long time, right? It's been a core part of your business. But I'm sure that the more recent advancements in AI and certainly its accessibility, the, the sheer power of the types of tools that we have access to today at scale. So for some industries, you know, I was speaking to an attorney friend of mine over the weekend who is literally sweating bullets because of what this means for his consultancy. But for you, it must be like a genie's magic lamp of opportunity, right? Because you see... I, I imagine the opportunity to fast track these terabytes of data that you're processing on a daily basis through you know, the machine of interpretation to a point where you can get just like really great insight back to your customers quicker, faster, more efficiently, more, co- more cost effectively than you ever could before. How are you thinking about the developments of AI as it relates to Incubus, you know, no. delivery of value to your no. clients? So I've got a contrarian view of AI with respect to solving Another the, contrarian uh, view. Let's go. The, um, the, the customer experience problem. If you break it down, there's really, and, and there's this incredible paper, it's actually called um, The Fabric of Personalized Experience. Sorry, I may not have the title exactly mm-hmm. correct, but he, he talks about, well, what are the six questions that you need to be able to answer to have an incredible experience? And the questions are, who is this person? 
Where are they? What do they want to do? Why do they want to do it? Um, what can you do for them, understanding that context and how you're going to do it? Hmm. And if you really think about customer experience at scale, you have to be able to understand that context. That's why I talk about the conversation. So I'll go back to journey. What journey does is it actually captures that at every point in the journey. And that's quite complex because... When you capture that, you have to capture all the customer details and you have to be able to understand what your company can do. So mm. you have to have modeled your company around what products you have, um, what channels you have for service, and all of that's possible. We, we're doing that today. So you actually build that out in something called a hypergraph. For each of those moments of experience, you have to connect those things. And that creates sequence and it creates timing. So you know that someone's been around the call center six times mm when they phone again or when they connect again so that you can actually do something about the experience and that's where experience is going. So if you think about the role of AI, the first thing is that AI depends on data and it will only give you as intelligent uh, an answer as a, as the, the data kind of you data put, into put in. It, yeah. So a lot of the, the execution of AI, what people are seeing in the applications is that ChatGPT, for example, has... I don't know how many hundreds of millions of documents, but it basically was fed a big part of the the internet over a lengthy period of time. I think it stopped in 2021. Mm -hmm. But it was trained very heavily on a corpus of data that uh, was made available to it. If you take this and now you extend it and you move it into the company, which is the whole customer experience fold, there's a lot of data that it wouldn't have. So companies are made up of rules mm. um, today predominantly. If you take a telco, it's, it's rules. What package are you on? How much mm. data? Uh, that's all rules. And then you pay amounts and those rules then give you that particular product. So you have to know the rules of the company. Mm. You have to know the rules of the product. You have to know where that person is uh, and you have to have context and sequence. So... The first thing that you have to feed the AI is you have to collect and organize the data in this hypergraph. And the, the best execution that I've seen of the hypergraph is the customer journey. And once you've been able to do that, then you can apply AI on top of that. And that's really what we're doing. So I'll give you great examples of that. we working with one company around, let's say it's, it's a gym. Yeah. And, and that gym really wants to scale. Mm. Now, what we think of a gym as today is not what a gym is about. Mm. Like uh, a gym hasn't externalized. It's a place, a brick and mortar place that you go and you lift weights or sure, sure. you run on a track. That's not what a gym should be. Any modern gym should, they're in such a good position to be your health partner. Like mm. it's mm. crazy that... Um, your your health insurer is your health partner, yeah. but your gym is, yeah, not, is not your health partner. Now, how is that gym going to create this experience for you? So the first thing that I have to know is like your preferences. So what are your preferences and how are you going to actually like, what do you want to do? Do you want to, uh, do you want to put, uh, lose, lose fat? Do you want to put on muscle? How much do you want to, what do you eat? What don't you eat? How many times can you train in a week? Are you a specialist? Do you love particular sport? So you've got to get the, the profile. You've got to get content from the person first. Mm. And then you've got to get context. Well, okay, how's this playing out over time? Are they keeping to what they promised? So you got the whole idea of goal and goal achievement. Now, the AI aspect of it kind of fills in the gaps. Uh, where we can use it very effectively is that if you have put in um, that you love jits and you can train X amount of t a time a week and you're vegetarian but you need X amount of protein, what we can then do is we can map that with AI. So we can say here are the products that we have. We have a dietitian product. We have this. We um, and these are the best times for you to train. These correct. Are, this is a community of people you might get along with very well, based on what we know about correct. Other people. Yeah, correct. So. so what we're doing is we're taking um, ChatGPT, which is the open kind of world, and yeah. we're using GPT four, and we're creating really a constrained grammar or private environment where yeah. you stack like up an your enterprise documents. GPT time. Correct. Yeah. And 
then instead of hard coding the rules, you can start interacting with that, but you still have to have the journey information, mm. you have to have the product information, but you don't have to do all the heavy lifting around saying, well, this is how we're going to script this to communicate this to you. The, the AI does that for you, like mm. when you interact with ChatGPT. Okay, so definitely more opportunity than threat for you, but I think what I'm hearing you say is that we mustn't assume from a customer experience perspective that AI replaces the fundamentals that we're responsible for. You know, we still have to design, we still have to prompt, we still have to be intentional. It's not going to solve those problems for us. It's not going to be creative for us. Our job is to is to do that work and then use AI to augment it. Is that correct? To an extent, I think AI in, in, in certain instances was rushed ahead. And that's why chatbots don't mm. work particularly well, because when you land on any chatbot, it has no context. Mm. So it doesn't know what you're trying to do and what, what the chatbot should be doing. And journey combined with, with AI achieves this is that if you know exactly what you've been doing, like you've been fiddling with your decoder, your, your decoder hasn't worked for six months. Yeah, you don't want to have to explain that again. Well, yeah, you need that kind of information, ideally. The company should know it. They should you know, know it, right? My decoder's yeah. actually been down for six months. Maybe yeah. someone's Well, they do know it. Yeah. They're just not connecting the dots, right? Well, no one's phoned me or, or sure. said to me like, sure. hey, like... Um, why, why don't you switch What is the issue on? there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, clearly something missing. Yeah. Mike, we're unfortunately out of time. If people are interested in finding out a little bit more about what Incuba does and how you do it, what's the best place to do, to go? Who do they speak to? Can they can come and speak to you? Can they find you on LinkedIn? Maybe if you could share those contacts, that'd be amazing. Yeah, awesome. So uh, my email is simple. It's mike at incuba.com and uh, incuba is I-N-Q-U-B-A and .com. Or you can go to the Incuba website, um, incuba.com, and there we go. Awesome. Thanks yeah. so much for taking yeah. time to speak yeah. to us. Really excited to see what you guys are going to produce over the next couple of years. And thanks so much for the opportunity, Mike. Cool, man. Yeah. Cool. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker, deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit mikestopforth.com, click on the podcast link, and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, a one-eyed man... Slash person is king. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.